HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Data. It's what's for dinner on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And right now, I'm certain every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, I'm very happy to have this guest sitting in the studio at Roberta's Pizza with me, because I think it's been about a year. (laughs) I think it's been about a year of scheduling and traveling uh, before we could finally find a day when Victor Penoff of Edamam could come on the show. So, Victor, welcome. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be here. Really took about a year, but I'm glad I'm here. Yes, and it took about a year because Victor is really on the global food tech circuit, and we're going to get to hear from him a little bit later in the show about what is happening out there in the world in terms of startups and trends and things like that. It's good to have a person out in the field come and report back. Absolutely. But before we get to that, we will start the show like we start every show with a little app talking about apps we love, old favorites that have been sitting on the home screen for maybe 10 years (laughs) or something new. So let's hear first from our man in Mission Control, Jeet Paul. How are you, Jeet? I'm good, Jennifer. How are you? Very nice. I'm good. (laughs) Okay, so... um 
I recently got the Google uh, router. So it comes with... Um, a Google router for your Wi-Fi at home? Correct. Yeah, okay. it has a, a, like a 1,500 feet range and uh, it uses So your some neighbors can use it? Hopefully not. (laughs) Um, But it has like, it uses a new type of technology which allows uh, the Wi Fi to be equally strong in the entire radius that it covers. Uh, So it comes with an app that allows you to prioritize devices as well as know all the devices that are logged in. So it's pretty cool. So you can say Jeet's phone comes first (laughs) if there's a discrepancy and then. Everybody yeah, else comes second. Exactly. It widens the bandwidth of whichever device that you choose to prioritize. That's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. But it's just a router. So it's dependent on the quality or the power of the Wi-Fi Correct. service that Correct. you've purchased for your home. Exactly. Yes. Okay. How is it working so far? Uh, I really like it. Um I think my place is a little too big, so I'm, I'm wondering if I have to reposition some things. But uh, it's definitely working uh, better than I thought it would. And the prioritization feature is really cool. Are your neighbors using it? Well, if they are, I would know because it lists all the devices that are using it. Interesting. Yep, yep. I would guess that the primary use for that is families and businesses. Yeah, I mean... It, it was a little bit on the expensive side. It was like a hundred dollars just for the router, hmm. but um, versus twenty nine ninety nine. Yeah, or like basic. you know, Verizon charges twelve dollars a month but, to rent. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it can d- definitely be used in businesses as well for sure. Interesting. So you get the app, and then you prioritize, and then you can see who's on it. Exactly. Interesting. Okay, very nice, Victor. Do you have an app that you like? And the only rule, and I say this to you because I know you are a voracious entrepreneur. You cannot talk about an app that you own, invest in, have designed. Yeah, uh, there, there are a few, but because um, I knew this question was coming, I was just thinking on the way here what I would pick, and I would have to go with Audible. Oh, the... Um, the, you know... Audiobooks. Uh, the audiobook app, because it's... Uh, it's one of those apps that just kind of fills up the gaps of time, you know, when I go running or biking or I'm driving or even walking around, you get to listen to books. I listen to a lot of books and or podcasts and whatnot. And it's a way to keep up with the world outside of my daily world, you know. So there is my work world, there's my personal world, but I always kind of want to learn new things, you know, expand my horizons. Uh, and, you know, in today's day and age, there is so much you can do of actual reading. So Audible is a lifesaver from that perspective. I probably go through two books a month, uh, which otherwise I wouldn't. So I love it. That's interesting. So you use it to fill the gaps in time. Does that mean that you still read print books or digital books in a... Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, this is kind of the night activity as a power down screens and have time to kind of get my mind into the sleep mode. Uh, I do read uh, from print or, you know, uh, uh, a Kindle. But um, that tends to be a very short read because I fall asleep very quickly. <laughs> so, so that, you know, if I want to actually consume a book, uh, you know, in full consciousness, you know, listening actually is a great, great exercise. You know, sometimes I have like a whole period of an hour and a half, two hours, and you can run through a book in six to 10 hours very easily. 
Now, do you feel that you are reading the book or do you feel that someone's reading the book to you? Is it the same cognitive effect as if you're actually reading? Is it a little bit easier? Is it more like listening to a podcast or even watching a TV show? I don't well, really read. I, I don't listen to that many audiobooks. Right. Well, because I'm, I'm my preference is paper. No, understood, understood. And I pick. I don't listen to fiction. You know, so it's not something that has a story and whatnot. I usually listen. I'm a lot into spirituality, astronomy, um, you know, health, um, genomics, longevity, all these type of things. So they kind of tend to be scientific uh, books. Uh, which have easy breaks, and even if you break in the middle of the sentence, you don't, you know, you know, you not tense. Oh, what's going to happen <laughs> next? This type of thing, uh, and so the feeling is that um, you actually are consuming the book, and you know, sometimes they are very good narrators, and you, and they actually add quite a bit to the book by the way they narrate it. Um, but that's not always the case, you know. And then it's it feels like more like reading the book, so. I don't know if I answered the question, but... <laughs> yes, I have a friend who really likes audible books, and every time she says to me she's reading a book, I ask her, are you reading it, or is someone reading it to you? Right, And right. most of the time, someone's reading it to her. Absolutely, the, no. The only audible book that I've really listened to, in, in all honesty, is the Trevor Noah book that he wrote, which is autobiographical. It's called Born a Crime, and it's about his, his birth and his youth in South Africa and he reads narrates the book right. and he does characters and the different voices and everything and it's really the book, the story itself is very well done and then he's so dynamic when he's reading it it really is um, an amazing experience that is much richer than I think reading it on the page because you do have his voice and right. all his voices so that's really been wonderful and that might make me listen to other things there are authors that are great, and they have to be good readers and good, you know, narrators, I guess. Um, so there are a couple that I've listened to. Sometimes they use, you know, Hollywood actors like mm -hmm. uh, Cumberbatch was narrating a book about time. You know, it's a by, by Italian scientists. You know, so physics books about time <laughs> narrated by Benedict Cumberbatch, but he makes it so dramatic. That <laughs> must actually... have been an interesting call from his agent, probably. Exactly. Yeah. So we have Victor here. He and I first met, we can't remember if it was at the Rabobank Food Bites event, which is a pitch-off between new food tech companies, or if it was the Food X Food Tech Accelerator, which we have both been to as well. And it's difficult to tell because both of these events take place in the same event space in New York City right around the same time of the year. True. And they're formatted very similarly. So I can't recall if it was FoodX or Food Bites, but it was one of those. Victor's CEO and, and one of the founders of a company called Edamam. And it is a database of food nutritional data, ingredient data. And most people at the, in this day and age have experienced reading ingredient lists. Many people have downloaded the apps. My Fitness Pal, Count It all those different things where you can input food or look up the nutritional analysis for different ingredients or food items. People are becoming more and more interested in the really specific data about what they're eating. It's sort of gone beyond 
Um, is it good for me? Is it not good for me? Fresh, frozen. People want to know how much sodium, how much magnesium, potassium, gluten, soy, different types of grains, um, different types of proteins, different types of sugars, carbohydrate sugar, alcohol sugar. And some of it is nutrition based. Some of it is diet based for, you know, health and fitness. Some of it's medical diet, illness diet. You have over, you have more than 700,000 food items in your database. Yeah, we do. Uh, so just a quick note on, on what the company is. I mean, we do have a very extensive database in terms of breadth and depth of food and nutrition data. But what we do is offer validated services. We offer real-time nutrition analysis of any meal ingredient list uh, or item using natural language. And we offer meal recommendations, uh, whether they're driven by a particular diet uh, or uh, you know, a particular nutrient need or profile. So real-time personalized meal recommendations. Uh, Let's sit on top of that database. So the database does have about 700,000 foods, uh, which include, um, you know, over half a million CPG items with UPC codes, um, some generic foods. Uh, we've built a database of generic meals, which are the most commonly eaten meals in their standard representations. Uh, we what have would one of those be? Uh, What's a generic pizza margarita meal? would be a generic meal. So we have we're so in, many representations. Or a pizza, a uh, cheese pizza. Sure, we're yeah, sitting absolutely. in Roberta. So absolutely, the use case would be uh, would be food logging. You know, most times people are lazy about logging food and they just want to be able to say into a device, you know, and voice recognition is kind of the new trend. It used to be image recognition, now it's voice recognition, and people want to just be able to say to a device. I ate two slices of pizza today and we need to understand what it is. So we need to have a standard representation of what pizza is without asking them to send us the recipe of the pizza and, and, and whatnot. So that's what we've built, kind of the more generic meals. We have standard representations of those and, um, and you know, there are about 50,000 of those items. Uh, on top of the database also has restaurant food items and then we have about 3 million recipes for which we've done full nutrient analysis. So we have about 120 nutrients, about 40 diet tags for each of those recipes. That's so. amazing, 40 diet tags. So let's bifurcate the business though to consumer and people, the person who would be making that audible command, I ate two pizzas of pizza today, tell me about that. And then your institutional and business clients because it's the same data and the same interest, but they're very different sets. Oh, uh, yeah, they're the we do the B two B two C business, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, so ultimately, our clients, which are businesses, so we are a B two B company. We sell to businesses in the food space or health and wellness space. You know, and tech space and tech space. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we have clients like Amazon and Samsung and Microsoft, and we have clients uh, like Food Network and New York Times and. ZeroCater and Takeaway.com, and we have clients uh, that have population health, like Virta Health and corporate wellness programs. So, so I can understand what you would be doing with the New York Times or the Food Network. You would be helping them with the nutritional data analysis of their recipes and things that they're going to publish and recipes that their test kitchens are developing. So that makes a lot of sense to me. What does Samsung do with nutritional data? And of course, insofar as you can discuss it on the air without revealing any, you know, proprietary business secrets. But Samsung and Microsoft, what? 
That's a little bit uh, harder for me to imagine. There's slightly different use cases. uh, And for Microsoft, I'm not at liberty to to mention at this time. Fair enough. um, But for for Samsung, it is... um, they, they have something called Samsung Health, used to be called S-Health. And essentially, they're, they're approaching the problem of how a person manages their health and well-being using, obviously, wearables, any device that's in their surrounding, their personal information. So a wearable uh, are the, the Fitbit or the uh, some of type world. of watch right. or something like that that's going to track your steps, your heartbeat. Correct. You know, energy your expenditure. Sleep. Yeah, your sleep, your heartbeat and whatnot. And, and so... The whole premise is that in one place you can collect all the data for one person and be able to proactively recommend to them what they should do with their life. Uh, and we fill the gap of food. So we are able to help people uh, either log food or, as it as is the case with, with Samsung, uh, be able to find recipes that fit their particular diet needs and profiles and, and so on and so forth. So that's the use case there. Ultimately, it is a consumer-facing application, and we are just the engine behind it, so to speak. That's fascinating. And which which part of your business is growing faster? Is it the food publishing side, the food media, food as a food information and food entertainment as a product, or is it the technology side? Right. Uh, just. Just One note on the strokes. food, it's yeah. not it's not necessarily just the media, like grocery stores, restaurants, catering companies, they are all interested in nutrition data. Uh, I think they're growing at equal pace, pace right now, but I think the healthcare industry, which drives food is medicine as the new mantra, is going to outpace the food space quite a bit. Uh, although those two places are starting to merge, like grocery stores now are singing the praise of food is medicine, you know, Kroger was just at the future food tech and they were talking about how food is medicine and that's their differentiation. Walmart, um, from what I understand, he just completed a, a strategy around healthy eating that also food is medicine is kind of key. But on the healthcare side, everybody's waking up from uh, you know population health to corporate wellness to hospital systems to insurance companies. They are thinking about prevention is the future of medicine. You know, let's let's try to get people not to get sick at all so and food is a big portion of that it's all about lifestyle you know how you sleep mindfulness so on and so forth but food is the biggest portion of that so i think that's where the growth of the market is going to come and that's where true personalization is going to appear true personalization with food as medicine or food as health that's certainly something you know chefs have been talking about that some chefs have done quite well about you know, focusing the food for health reasons, a diet like the Whole30, that whole eating program and nutrition program is about food and your, the reaction it has with your body and using the types of food you eat to control different reactions within your body, which is fascinating. And to point, Walmart launched a Whole30 approved line of frozen meals recently which I saw on social media. And to me, whenever Walmart or Amazon or a company like that makes a move to um, invest in something or validate a trend, that's, that moves the needle because we're talking about Absolutely. volume and we're talking about they reach a large percentage of the population. So Walmart getting into the whole, whole30 frozen food business is, I think, quite Absolutely. a statement. Is this 
We talk about the technology and, you know, the wearable devices and people who are concerned about their food. Is this, is this like a one, the, the 1% problems of, you know, people who have iPhones, who have, you know, a $1,000 phone and they're concerned? Is it accessible enough to enough people in the world for it to be really a, a, a viable force for true change, do you think? It's not completely ready as a solution. I think personal nutrition is still a dream, you know, true personal nutrition. And yes, you're what do you, right. What do you mean when you say true personal nutrition? True personal nutrition is understanding uh, not just the likes and dislikes of a person and their allergies and maybe, you know, a chronic condition they may have, you know, they have type 2 diabetes or kidney disease, but also reading in real time uh, their blood chemistry, understanding their genome makeup, their microbiome makeup, uh, and how that changes with season, with location, and whatnot. So it's kind of almost in real-time tracking of a person so that you understand what are the best foods that fit them at this particular time and then recommend those foods based on you know their budgets, based on where they are located, you know what they may have available around them, whether it's grocery stores or restaurants or even to cook at home. So this is true personalization. This is kind of our vision you know, 20, 30, 50 years down the road. It's a seamless virtual nutrition is that resides all around you in the cloud it can be in any device you wear it's your refrigerator it is um, you know the people you, uh, that you talk to in the restaurant and whatnot and be able to kind of take your personal information and recommend things seamlessly now that dream is far away uh, what is starting 20 or 30 years doesn't seem that far away though is well, that far away depends on your time horizon i guess okay <laughs> so do you uh, think it's really 20 or 30 years? Do you think it's maybe closer? For some people, it's closer. And that's what that's where we get into the 1%. And I think there, there are folks that can employ technologies earlier, you know, to do, you know, gene sequencing and test their microbiome and do biohacking and be much more mindful about the device and hook up everything and, and whatnot. And so, like any technology, I think there will be early adopters. They would tend to be the rich people. Uh, but that is not to say... the the technological barriers to build it for everybody else is not they're not that that big and i think this is one of those technologies that unlike the iphone it's not going to stay really expensive for a long time because the benefits are so tremendous uh from people eating the right way and getting healthier that governments insurance companies are all going to get into the game and reduce the costs of adoption for the individuals virtually zero so i can foresee that at some point when this becomes available the poorest population will have it available because it will be somehow subsidized through insurance plans or uh, through um, government programs we already work with some food banks so i know this is you know what people are thinking about you know how do you get you know somebody in the food desert underprivileged you know to eat healthy you know how do you educate them what health is? And, and it starts with very basic things, you know, uh, but eventually personalization becomes more and more important. This is slightly off topic, but I couldn't help but think about how popular the genetic testing kits are now. That seems such a sci-fi futuristic idea that you buy a kit and you send it away and it tells you, about your genetic makeup and things like that, that seems to be very close to the truly personalized nutrition that you're talking about. And these genetic tests are certainly becoming more and more available and more and more 
economical, not economical, but a more accessible price point. Do you, are they, are these things all in the same batch of technology that's moving forward towards personalization? Yeah, like that? I think you know gene. I mean, gene sequencing would be uh, one of the inputs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to understand what this person needs, you have to understand who they are and where they come from. And gene sequencing would be one. I personally don't think gene information would be that educational as to what you have to eat, because I bet that for 99% of the people, it will be eat more plant-based food. <laughs> you know, not too much of it. <laughs> you know, the whole micropollen. Maybe uh, you're lactose intolerant or gluten intolerant right. or something There's like some, that, or would be the allergens or things right. like that. You might be able to identify certain genes that indicate uh, allergens. Uh, they might be rare diseases for which, you know, you understand from the gene sequencing. Yes, those are things. And for those rare diseases, those... Uh, foods are counterindicators and whatnot, avoid them. But I do think where it's going to make real difference is when the microbiome really hits the scene and the science around, you know, what microbes live in you and this how they is all, process This is all the talk we're hearing about the gut, your gut health, yep, your gut absolutely. flora, all of absolutely. those things. Exactly, exactly. And that can be truly personal. And then, I mean, just, just think about it. You know, a person that has grown up in South Africa, versus a person that's grown in Vietnam. Like, you know, imagine a 20-year-old man grown up in South Africa versus a 30-year-old woman that's grown up in Vietnam versus somebody that's grown in Italy. And so do you think Mediterranean diet is good for all three of them? No, they eat different things because they grew up in a different place. Their microbiome is different, you know, through generations and generations. When you start understanding that and start understanding not just on a geographic level this group of people's microbiome is different from that but on an individual level then true personalization is going to start happening. So which are the pieces of technology that are missing for this to be a reality? Or do the pieces of technology exist and they just need to be integrated? What what What's happening on your 20 to 30 year timeline? I think that technology exists. So it's more integration uh, putting everything together. And it, it really, it's not a technological challenge, it's a business model challenge. It's like aligning the actors in the whole supply chain, you know, talking about healthcare and food industry, which have incentives to, you know, to keep things as they are and moving them to completely different mindset when you employ food as medicine. And obviously food has to be tasty, right? I mean, that's the primary reason we eat in it. We have to enjoy food. That uh, going to be just some futuristic where you, I believe that I've seen movies where, you know, everybody lines up in their matching pajamas at the cafeteria and they scan their barcode and they get some protein, you know, shake or it, gruel. It, it's called that's Completely, uh, <laughs> engineered for specifically their body and then they eat it and they're going to live forever. Yeah, that's, I somehow don't see that in the future. I think, you know, we are wired to enjoy our food and food has a social element and, and whatnot. So I think all this is going to be taken into account when, you know, the the seamless world which I described is, is taking place. It's not all going to be about health. It's going to be about, you know, hey, you enjoy eating pizza margarita. So let's take that into account and recommend that and balance it off against the other meals and, you know, who is with you and all that stuff. So to answer your question, I think all the technology is here. It's just more of a business model. There is science that's missing. There is science around genome and around microbiome. The microbiome is just getting started. On the genome side, I mean, there are probably 15 or 16 genes that people actually have some idea what food might be related to. 
which is minuscule. So, uh, you know, we're talking about billions of genes. So it's, it, it's, you know, to actually get true personalization, there's a lot of science that needs to happen. Okay. We are going to take a quick break and ponder all that science that needs to happen and find out who the amazing company is that is sponsoring the show. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot exclusively from the generosity of our underwriters, grants, and members who are mostly listeners like you. Stay with us. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today, I am happy to share the recording studio with Victor Penov of Edmam. And this is a fascinating company that has a huge amount of data about food and what's in it and the nutritional breakdown and all of those kinds of things, and then is using it as a foundation to build real-time analysis on what people are eating. It's kind of fascinating. And before the break, Victor and I were talking about the vision for the company in 20 or 30 years of having truly personalized real-time analysis of your entire human organism body along with what's available to you in your space, in your food area, and give you a real-time reading of what you should be eating to totally maximize your health and performance and efficiency, which sounds amazing and also very futuristic. It is. It is. But you think that all the technology pretty much exists and well, we just I mean, need companies and, and businesses to bring it together. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are things that, that sound a little bit out there, but they exist. For example, there are patches that you can put in your skin that can do real-time blood chemistry analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a wearable, uh, and it can become better with time. That it become almost non-intrusive. There are smart toilets that can, you know, once you go to the bathroom, they can analyze and figure out your microbiome and figure out what's happening there. So these things are almost non-obtrusive ways that, that you know, that technology can be built. Um, you 
know, with some gene sequencing uh, and with, uh, you know, matching all that towards the right food, I think everything is there to, to, be, to be done. It's just a question of putting together. Those are some wild things that you just mentioned. And one of the reasons why it took us so long to find a date to have Victor on the show is that he is really traveling quite a bit and he is at many of the international food and tech conferences and he is an advisor to a lot of different food tech companies and startups and accelerators and incubators. Victor, in your travels and in your work, what are you seeing right now in terms of the food tech trends? So the food tech, I mean, people break down the food technology into various things. There is uh, ag tech, so there's quite a bit happening there, um, you know, which is, you know, driven by how do we feel, feed the planet and, um, you know, there is talk about waste and how do we manage that and talk about transparency uh, and how do we track the food and responsibly uh, use our resources, you know, soil health, blockchain is big around transparency and supply chain. So this is one of those those things. On the on the other end, you know, the things that are facing the consumer, uh, I see, you know, the trends that everybody else is, you know, plant-based is making a huge, huge, I wouldn't call it comeback because, you know, that used to be the way we used to eat. You know, <laughs> and before. it's the way some people still eat. Right. 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 <laughs> I mean, there are huge populations in the world where culturally they have a plant-based diet. Correct. It's, you know, there is definitely something specific for people who are in the United States and uh, have a, a different type of, you know, American food is a very specific eating style. And it's different from Italian or Indian or Chinese and I was at, I th it might have been the same event that we were at. It was a, um, a plant-based meat company. So, you know, the next, the newest, the bestest vegetarian burger, plant-based meat patty idea. And the woman who was giving the presentation for her company talked about how people are moving towards a plant-based diet. And the thing that's always so interesting to me is... There are a lot of cultures in the world where their culinary style is plant-based. Pasta pomodoro, margarita pizza. Right. Absolutely. Those are plant-based. Indian yeah. food, mostly plant-based. A lot of Chinese and Japanese food, mostly plant-based. Yeah. And it really is, in some instances, when we say moving towards plant-based, I think that's a lot of encompassing, you know, the United States, maybe Canada, and, and countries that are specifically meat and animal protein-based, which is not necessarily the majority of the world. No, it's not. But, you know, the unfortunate part is that the developing world is starting to adopt a Western diet. So in China, there is a famous book called China Study, um, you know, about what happened. So in China, it used to be more plant-based, and it's, to a great extent, because it was expensive to get meat. Now that the populations come richer, the first thing they go is buy pork. And so they're starting to eat a lot more meat, which increases the incidence of obesity, diabetes, so on and so forth. And it is adopting that Western diet because it is the aspirational diet as people become richer. Uh, part of it is driven by the fast food industry of the past, not the new fast food industry, which was, you know, you can quickly get a burger that's cheap. Um, and so 
that I think that mentality is changing. That's changing with the millennials, but now Gen Z are starting to drive that, and it really is kind of health is important. Plant-based is the way we should live for the health of ourselves and for the health of the planet. Uh, and even if it costs a little bit more, so be it. Well, it costs a lot more. There was an article not too long ago. I would ha- I read it online somewhere. It came across my newsfeed that to eat an organic vegetable diet was more expensive than eating a meat diet, especially if you're in a place like New York City and you're going to the farmer's market and you're buying you know, organic produce. It can be very expensive relative to other things. It could be, but I think it's a, it's a one study and uh, you should take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I, I've, I've cooked all my life, you know, almost every day for the last 30 years. I buy, I used to live in New York and I buy a lot of, uh, from farmer's markets uh, and so on, so on and so forth. So I know it's expensive, but if you do want to eat plant-based organic, you don't have to do it this way. There are ways to do it. And also you can be smart about how you use ingredients. A lot of it is wasted food, you know, because you buy more than you need and you throw it out. Um, And so if you learn to use the ingredients in a way that you fully utilize it um, and used to use the cheaper ingredients, you know, you don't have to have asparagus every day, you know, you can can have broccoli. avocado toast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So people tend to be, you know, there's a little bit of kind of this fattiness about uh, foods that are good for you, like the silver bullets, you know. It's the superfood article that's been circulating through the internet for years, the same one, the same superfoods, the same eat this, not that. Yeah, and again, going back to personalized nutrition, those might be, in general, they might be good, but they might be, some of them might be better for one people, mm-hmm. for one person, uh, not that it's good for another person and whatnot. And there might be foods that they should eat that are not even on that list. You know, it's like you have to understand what is the best for this particular person. Um, to that point, I, I like to experiment sometimes on myself in terms of what I eat and when I, you know, exercise and I train a lot at the gym and I have my sports that I participate in. So in January, I did the Whole30 diet. I was very curious about... I wasn't so much interested in the actual diet part itself, but I was interested in getting to day 31, where you then started to add, reintroduce, and add back in the things that you had eliminated. Mm -hmm. And I did, as you're supposed to you know, add one thing and then go back to the diet and then add another. So I was on the Whole30 diet probably for about seven weeks. Okay. So what happened? You know, it was fascinating. I I love everything. I eat everything. I I don't think there's a food that's bad or you shouldn't eat. You know, I eat gluten and sweets and fat and meat and alcohol and all those things. And But what I did discover was, not that I'm gluten intolerant, but definitely my system had... It had an effect eating gluten after not having had it. Sugar was a tremendous effect on me when I had it after the period of time not having it. Dairy was really fine, almost not noticeable. Grains and rice and things like that were really fine. But the sugar, the alcohol, and the gluten certainly had a a much greater effect on my system than I thought they would. So it was just very interesting just to see and at that sort of trial and error and even something like that on a very basic level I wasn't counting anything I wasn't measuring anything I do make most of my foods at home 
make mayonnaise, make salad dressing, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I know what's in right, what right, I eat. Right. But it was a fascinating experiment and certainly easy enough to do uh, that Excellent. I could see if, if that experiment was enhanced by scientific data about my, you know, my body and what was happening. It could be really amazing. It is. And, you know... Anybody should try and biohack a little bit and find out what is good and bad for them. Um, you know, going into a routine, eating the same foods over and over again can be a recipe for disaster. And if it works, it's great. But, you know, diversity in foods is actually good. It kind of keeps your body honest. You, you throw at it a little bit something different and it has to react. It's like exercise, the way they exactly. tell you. You can get really efficient at exercise. You need to do something different every now and again to make your muscles work in a different way or to challenge you so that you keep getting stronger and making things work. Yeah, exactly. It's a hundred percent that, but I think everybody should biohack and find out what's good for them and what's not good for them. I did similar thing. And for me, sugar is the big thing. So, uh, now I do, um, you know, probably four or five months of the year where I don't have any sugar. I know I did sugar, you know, mm -hmm. I do have fruit and, and right. so on and so forth. No added uh, processed sugar. No, cane no. sugar and cane sugar and added sugar is in a lot of things. In so many more things than you think. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know, you get you know cured meats and there'll be sugar in that. Yes, bacon. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's you know it, it's one of those things, and that's for me. And for other people, it might be gluten, it might be dairy, mm -hmm. it might be soy, uh, whatever it is. Uh, but I, you know, and I know people like to point fingers things. I think. If you have to pick one, sugar is probably the easiest one to have the most impact on most right. people just because we so overuse it in our daily diets. And it has such an immediate and impactful event on your blood sugar levels and your exactly. insulin and the energy spikes and things like that. It's a tough one to avoid, though, because it is in everything. Yeah. And if you are a listener and you're interested in biohacking you know, some of your diet, start being a label reader. It's pretty amazing sometimes when you read things, especially things that are supposed to be healthy or good for you or follow some sort of protocol. Absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes you'd be surprised the things that have sugar. Yeah. yeah. There's rule of thumb, you know, it's for, for most people that don't want to get deep into what the ingredients are, what the impact is. The they don't want to know. Yeah, well, you have to understand every single ingredient. So if it's some kind of a chemical that you can't even pronounce, it's probably not good for you. Uh, and the shorter the list of ingredients, the better it is. So if you stick to under 10 ingredients, like three to four is ideal, uh, and you understand what it is, it's probably good for you. If it says sugar towards the top of the list, avoid it if possible, but that's, you know. So we are just about out of time, but before we end the show... I'm going to ask you, what ha what's the most exciting thing you've seen recently or the thing that's really caught your attention or your imagination or something that you're really excited about? Uh, you know, I was going to answer differently, but now I, now that it's, it's come to me, it's like, you know, I'm fascinated by uh, the gut-brain axis. And obviously now it speaks to, you know, food and health and whatnot. But the fact that you can improve tremendously your mental health, cure depression, reverse Alzheimer's, uh, and be able to uh, modify your thoughts and who you are as a person. Even you, you can even impact gene modification. You can change your genome through, um, through eating and through mindfulness. So 
that connection to me has been very, very fascinating. And I think what I want to do is spend more time to understand that connection and figure out how food can impact our mental health as well. So as a trend, that's something that I'm very uh, closely watching. Is there a book or an article or an event or something that people can maybe look for online or in the world to learn a little bit more about that? There's a lot that's been published online. Uh, I'm not sure there is a particular book that I would recommend. Uh, it is really nascent, so it's kind of very early, early on. Early stage. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and the, the science is not there yet. People are starting to do experimentation around it. Uh, so if you just look up, you know, can food heal my depression type of thing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you probably start, you know, digging and go through the wormhole and then find out more articles around it. So I think that'll be the, be the way to start. The brain-gut connection. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, maybe you should write that book. I have to maybe educate myself write, quite a bit Maybe you should write that, that book and then it could become an audible. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, Victor, I want to thank you for coming on the show. If people are curious about his company, it's Edam. It's E-D-A-M-A-M dot com. It's an interesting site if you're a developer. They have API for developers and things like that. It's an interesting thing, although because they are a foundational company, it's sort of not exactly a consumer-facing thing. But there's things there, and you can people can search the database, and you can look through things and see how the information plays out. And you might be surprised, again, start looking at some of your favorite foods and the things that you love to eat and see what they're really, what's really going on under the hood. It's really fascinating. Sometimes you'll be surprised what you find. I want to thank him for coming on the show on Tech Bites at Heritage Radio Network, our studio is located inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We broadcast every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our engineer is Jeet Paul. Our theme song is Nomad, a CPU track from the amazing DJ Uptown Nico. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, your host and producer. Reach out if you have a great idea for a show. Maybe you should come on. Do you have a tech startup? You can email us techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org or find us on social media at techbyteshrn. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.